welcome back, everyone. This is John White again on the Rural Matters podcast. Um, it's one of the leading podcasts on rural education, health, and the economy in rural America. And we always try to bring in um, insightful guests who can talk about the innovations that are going, taking place in rural communities that people may not be aware of. And today is no exception. We have two great guests today. We have Katie Rock and we also have Lou Nelson, both from the Center for Rural Affairs in Nebraska. I always enjoyed going to Nebraska, not just for the great stakes, but also because there was so much going on there with entrepreneurship and STEM and et cetera. So Katie, I'm going to let you and Lou introduce yourselves, kind of tell a little bit about your new, and then we'll dive right into a conversation. So Kitty Rock, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks, John, for having us. I grew up on a farm in eastern Iowa outside the town of Muscatine, and um, now I, I work out of a the Center for Rural Affairs Iowa office, which is in Nevada. Uh, and I work on state policy related to water and clean energy and really trying to advocate for rural communities and how these topics can, can benefit them. Um, I, right now, this time of year in January, I'm, I'm spending most of my days at the Capitol, but I'm happy to be a part of our conversation today. Great. So, Lou, are you based in Iowa or are you in Nebraska? No, I'm actually uh, based in our Nebraska office, which is in Lyons, Nebraska. Uh, and I grew up in Northeast Nebraska, which is where Lyons is located. Uh, I, I'm also a policy program associate uh, with the center. And my primary focus is on clean energy policy in Nebraska and across the Midwest and Great Plains, uh, whether that be you know, the siting of new systems, uh, how to encourage uh, the development of new systems, or you know, even the infrastructure that can connect those new systems to the grid. Excellent. Excellent. So tell us a little bit either Katie or Lou, tell us a little bit about this new report that's out called Generation and Delivery, Economic Impact on Transmission Infrastructure in Rural Counties. Talk about the report a little bit and how it maybe connects to future careers. Well, so this is a report so Katie, that came out at, yep, at the end of last year, and uh, it was done by our counterpart, Jonathan Haladic, and uh, another counterpart of his. Um, and they were looking at how different states have managed the revenues and tax assessments tied to transmission lines. And um, there's some variation across between different states, and it, it depends on each state how those impact rural communities. Yeah, and I, one reason why we wanted to do this report is that, you know, we know that there are benefits that are more tangible, but tax revenue is something that's always hard to really, you know, pick at and really see how, how it expands in a county. Uh, and we've we've recently had a, a significant transmission build out, uh, one of the more significant ones we've had in several decades. And a lot of that is related to the development of renewables across the region. Uh, and because we've had that build out, uh, we have the potential for case studies to really look at in different states how this tax revenue has been handled. And you, we've found some interesting things, interesting ways that you know, counties have used that money or how they may have missed out on that money because of decisions that were made uh, at the state level. So talk about this a little bit more. Describe what we're talking about. When I think about transmission lines, I'm thinking about the big metal structures with the big lines that are going across the horizon. But, but you're talking about more of a puzzle that includes renewable energy and, and economic development in rural areas, aren't we? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's kind of... 
it gets technical and, and that makes it kind of complicated to understand. Um, we actually have another report coming out at the end of this month where we surveyed uh, landowners in, in Northeast Iowa uh, who are on the, the route of a potential new transmission line and just kind of asked them about their perceptions on renewable energy in general and how this benefits them. Um, are they in favor of it? And what we found is that while a lot of people are in favor of renewable energy, a majority are still in favor of it, even though we're seeing more pushback against these big kind of industrial scale projects. Um, people see a real benefit when it comes to wind and solar installations, but transmission lines, they don't really perceive that they get any benefit from that. Um, and people kind of don't always like how they look on the landscape. Um, and so this kind of report dives into this previous report, the Generation and Transmission Report, dives into how um, local communities and counties can work to structure incentives to make sure that they benefit. Um, so maybe, would you like to talk more about how these, these different case studies show that? Yeah, and, you know, John, let me just, just, let me just tell us. Go ahead, Lou, oh, before ahead. you get started, let me just tell everyone they can find that on your website at www dot cfra dot org that center for rural affairs dot org go ahead lou yeah and you know john i think you were exactly right that you know tra- it's good to think of transmission as this piece of the puzzle and uh you know i, I think when it comes to uh you know a wind farm or even solar systems that may be you know in a field or on someone's home you know i think i think we can feel the benefit more directly and there often are some more directly um, you know, linking benefits to a community, uh, whereas transmission, it's sort of harder to, you know, feel those benefits or, you know, to really perceive those benefits. And it's kind of because it is that piece of the puzzle like a road would be, uh, you know, it's infrastructure. It's not as exciting. It it doesn't seem like it has that many opportunities. Uh, but, you know, we, we know those opportunities are there. And we know that uh, through these case studies uh, that some communities have been able to uh, really benefit from the development of transmission, not just in economic activity during construction, uh, either from you know new jobs that are coming to the area or uh, from locally you know local spending that goes into the economy uh, in a rural area, uh, but also in the tax revenue. And uh, our our case studies were in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Kansas. And uh, you know what we found is that. Overall, uh, and this kind of gets into the conclusion of the report, uh, the benefits are best when you really give a give the county the opportunity uh, to get that revenue and choose how to use it. Uh, so, in Minnesota, for example, uh, they receive that property tax revenue, um, or they receive the the revenue from uh, from the transmission projects, and they used it to actually decrease uh, the taxes paid by property owners. In the county, uh, so it was a little bit of you know a tax relief sort of package in that sense. Whereas in Wisconsin, uh, it wasn't direct tax revenue; it was actually environmental impact fees that transmission developers uh, pay. And uh, while you know while it's different than the tax revenue side, uh, it was I believe nine million dollars or about nine million dollars that was spread over about three counties. Uh, which was available for use for a variety of projects related to, you know, conservation, community improvement, uh, and things like that. And in those cases, you know, it, providing that choice really allowed the county to tailor, uh, you know, tailor how they want to use that revenue. 
which is really, you know, really essential for small towns where maybe you don't have the universal needs. You know, every small town is different and really having that, you know, that choice available allows you to make the best decision for your community. Now, talk a little bit further about that tax revenue side of things and the economic impact. As a lot of schools are reliant upon property taxes and tax revenue, how has it benefited school systems? Uh, I saw that mentioned a little bit in your report. So the case study that really focuses on school systems in the report is is Kansas. And it's kind of more an example of, um, you know, the the anti-example. The Kansas state legislature had placed a cap on tax revenues that could go to schools. Um, And then when these transmission infrastructure um, came online, Kansas also allowed it to be tax exempt for the first 10 years to kind of entice. Uh, this infrastructure development in their state. Um, And so a small amount of revenue was collected through taxes assessed on substations, and that was then shared with county agencies. But um, I think through the combination of this uh, tax exemption for the first 10 years and the cap on um, what they would spend for schools, the schools really missed out on any tax revenue from this transmission development. Um, and so that's where these state policies really kind of impacted um, the revenues that could be spent at the local level and kind of hamstrung these rural communities from um, generating more revenue for their schools. So talk about that a little further. What what would have worked better? How could they fix that? Or how could other um, parts of the country avoid a situation like that? Well, I mean, not capping your spending on schools would be probably the, the, the most straightforward thing. Uh, but also not just true. allowing allowing your, um, at the county level, allowing them to make those kinds of decisions, um, you know, and when you create a tax exemption for the first 10 years, I mean, the benefit to these transmission companies on that, what they're saving on their taxes is, is pretty small. And um, they would probably make the uh, that development choice anyway. Um, but by offering that, you are kind of cutting, that could be revenue that could go to your school, but maybe, you know, $9 million over three counties is, it was a big deal for a rural school system. Sure. So that should be a consideration up front, obviously, to avoid that mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be uh, smart. And, and to not hamstring a county by, you know, offering incentives that are, you know, so great or that, you know, could have a, a deeper long-term effect, I think, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of the other pieces of the, the report that uh, we should let our listeners know about? Well, I just think that uh, we've also seen kind of as these transmission lines um, come on board or get updated, and we see more investment in wind farms and and siting uh, wind turbines on the landscape, or uh, we're starting to see more of an uptake in solar too, especially in Iowa, where wind is uh, generating over thirty seven percent of our electricity these days. Um, and the cost of this these wind renewable energy sources is is going down and becoming much more price competitive with you know oil and, and natural gas and coal, um, and so having this infrastructure is is a big piece of that larger development. Uh, we're also now seeing that, and I read in the news last week that General Motors um, is concerned about this, our transmission line infrastructure because they're starting to make more investments in their, um, in their design for new cars for electric vehicles. And they realize that they'll be able to scale um, the sale of these new 
vehicles as long as there's um, electrical generation happening across broad swaths of the country. Um, and so it kind of becomes part of a larger puzzle of, of developing an economy for the 21st century. And in some places, redeveloping their economy, I would assume, especially in rural areas. Right, right. And so um, in Iowa, where you know the wind energy is kind of you know coming on around a decade, um, they just last year um, announced one major wind farm that's actually they're doing significant maintenance on all of their turbines and kind of updating the the circuitry and technology. And so that's that's an economic opportunity in these rural areas to have these technicians come on and then reinstall and update um, these turbines. So um, it's just, it's part of a process. It's a major investment, but um, it, it has the potential to really um, retool the economy where, where these communities can say yes. So what we try to advocate um, at the Center for Rural Affairs is making sure that these rural communities know that they have a major role in this process and that they have a voice and they have rights and they should be a part of it. Um, it should be an open and transparent process and they need to, um, you know, argue and think through and advocate for what they want to see in their communities. You know, if they, we're hearing a lot more from people that, that don't, they kind of are pushing back against these industrial scale programs and, and transition lines and they want to see more small scale um, community solar and community wind turbines that will make their community um, energy independent. Um, but at the same time, you need to think about these things that, like what this report's talking about is, you know, how can you generate tax revenue that also helps your broader community, um, not just through jobs, but through educating your the kids and, you know, other public services. So and that's the point of these reports. Uh, making sure people know what what they can do. So let's talk about those uh, those career opportunities a little further. Um, when you're talking about renewable energy and clean energy, um, these are new jobs, new careers that are available to to students that are coming out of high school, to adults who need to retrain for new careers. If uh, if an employer has left the community, talk a little bit further about the career opportunities that are emerging too. Yeah, so uh, I think I think what we see a lot of is uh, training programs coming through community colleges and technical schools, which you know you you see more readily in rural areas or near to rural areas, and uh, you know the students right out of high school can go into these programs. They can um, you know sort of get on a fast track to some of the uh, you know fastest growing jobs in the U.S. and jobs that are frankly pay pretty well for a rural area. And so, uh, you know, they, they're definitely available for students right out of high school. And, you know, even in communities where, um, you know, someone may be looking for a new job, even if they've, you know, they've been in the workforce for a while, uh, you know, some of these systems, especially if we're talking smaller scale, you know, like a solar system, uh, you know, it's, there's an opportunity there to have, have people retrain or, uh, you know, use overlapping skills Say if you're, you know, if you're an electrician already, uh, it, it wouldn't be too difficult to get into the game of installing solar and, uh, you know, really, really going to work to make that a, a new career field. So there's a lot of potential to expand out uh, and, uh, you know, let students go to a school that may be near to them and, and have an opportunity to uh, find a place back in a community where they grew up or a community like when they grew up. 
in which, you know, uh, where they'll have a good paying job, which uh, in a lot of rural areas, I think that's that's the thing that a lot of us are concerned about, the fact that there there's sometimes limited opportunity for students that are getting near to graduation age or, you know, if you have a job, but you want to look for, you know, new work or a new job, uh, just having those opportunities available uh, is such an important thing to rural areas. Uh, in Iowa, where wind's pretty established, we have um, the wind energy that alone supports about 8,000 to 9,000 jobs. Um, and a lot of those can be, you know, you don't have to have a college degree. You can go to community college and their trade skill job. Um, but we actually also, uh, last week, had a solar uh, business advocacy day at the Capitol. And there was one local business, Iowa Wind and Solar, that had brought with them uh, four people that had moved from other states to Iowa to to work for their company. They've been growing so fast and um, they needed to hire a lot of people in a short amount of time. And um, so that that's a great success story as well. And many of them had college degrees. Um, we also had people there that were, you know, engineers with advanced degrees that um, work on system design and, um, you know, have backgrounds in robotics and kind of really advanced technical things. And uh, having those kinds of jobs in Iowa um, is is great. Um, I also have a, a personal story. I have a, an uncle. He worked, hadn't gone to college, and he worked at a local grain elevator and processor, and he lost his job. And um, he went back to school in his, I don't know, I think he was probably in his late 50s and um, got a degree from a community college and moved uh, to Western Iowa and worked on these wind turbines for a couple of years. He really enjoyed it. It was really unexpected, but he hammered through and, and did that. And um, that's pretty, pretty unique, too. It, it, it does happen. It has really, um, I think, changed a lot of communities in rural Iowa. I'll say he must like heights. That's not yeah, and he, uh, he really uh, was pretty proud to be climbing those towers with guys half his age. But now I like what a like such a thrill. <laughs> it makes take some lemons and make lemonade for a while. So yeah. let me just take a quick break and and uh, talk about a little bit about our marketing partners. I definitely want to thank the Center for Rural Affairs, the National Rural Education Association. Each of our marketing partners help us uh, keep this podcast going, and I just wanted to extend the thanks to them and encourage everyone mm-hmm. to tell your friends about the podcast, and they can listen to it on iTunes and Google Play, Stitcher find the look for podcasts so keep listening and if you have ideas be sure to email us at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com so let's just uh, uh let's transition here and talk about sort of how you advise communities when they are, when they hear about a transmission project and uh when sort of the information and advocacy period begins how do you how do you talk to communities about this issue? Yeah. So I, I think the most important thing is, you know, reach out early and often. And, you know, that's not just on the community itself. It's also on developers. And, uh, you know, what, what we have found is that uh, these projects work best and they're developed best when the developer of the project and the community are working in tandem uh, and really, you know, trying to identify, uh, you know, how how to best build the project, how to cite it in the best possible way, what areas that the community would like to be avoided, um, you know, just things like that. And it can even be small things. You know, I sometimes just a landowner walking his property uh, with, you know, 
with the developer or with land agents and really just, you know, noting where fence line may be or, you know, where they may want uh, the line to not be placed on the property for some specific reason uh, can do a lot. And so just that early outreach and really talking about what the project will be like, where it will be uh, and how it will be built. Those are all just important things that need to happen up front. Um, I think the second thing is just, you know, really, really just, you know, do your best to find good information about the projects, really, uh, you know, really be involved in the process, uh, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're going to the, the meetings that happen if there are open houses where they're going over the route, uh, you know, if there, if there's uh, a hearing, you know, attend the hearing, uh, just really make sure that your voice is being heard and uh, that when, when you're attending these meetings that you're, you're really putting forward what are the, the things that are most important to you and your community. Okay, would you add anything to that? I know you have a background in, in uh, advocacy. Uh, yeah, I think it's just you know, making sure that people use, use their voice and um, attend these meetings, you know, voice your concerns and be honest, um, you know, people want to hear, you know, have honest conversations. That's the only way to kind of, you know, you, you do have to bring up the conflict and uh, not let it fester and, and just be open about it. And, um, you know, people work through those things one conversation at a time. Um, but yeah, and it's, um, it's, you know, back to the making sure communities do have a role in this. They need to know um, what, what they can do to, to kind of, you see some benefits from these projects. Uh, so the, the publications that we've talked about, if you go to our website, um, as John mentioned before, um, cfra.org, uh, we have a little tab that says media, and you can find and these reports under reports and publications under that tab if you want to read through them yourself. There's a lot of interesting information there. And I think the uh, the main report is actually on your homepage right now, so people could find that right there on your homepage too. Yeah, and so now, Lou, now could you maybe mention um, how how do people find out about these meetings? Do they usually get a letter in the mail, or is it in the paper? Um, yeah, it, it can vary, but it usually has to be published in uh, you know a local paper, or there has to be direct mailers to uh, landowners that are on the routes for projects. That's a good point. What are some of the good What are some of the good questions that communities want to ask uh, when they hear about these meetings? You know, I think a, a really good early question uh, is just the steps that a developer is taking to identify important areas. Uh, so when when a transmission project is in development, it usually starts with a really broad general study area, and that will include the two points that the line is meant to run to. Uh, but they haven't narrowed it down yet. And it's really a, you know, really identifying everything that's at play in that study area in that first round. And then in the second round, they'll narrow it down to corridors. And those corridors give better ideas of, you know, here's a, a, a more finite area where a route could be placed. Uh, and then after a third round, they'll usually have a, a route on paper. And, you know, they'll have at least a route and likely... Uh, some additional routing options uh, that they're required to have in most states. I think it's really important to, to for community members to find out, you know, who who's a developer reaching out to in that study area phase in that first round. You know, who are they talking to? How are they identifying these areas? Do they know about these areas? Uh, you know, is there is there some group they need to be in contact with? Because that group may know that there's a conservation area, 
you know, right here on the map. And so that should be, you know, crossed off the mm-hmm. list right away. Uh, and, you know, that, that question, I don't think that question stops in round two either, you know, when it's down to a corridor, uh, those questions still need to be asked. And it's really, you know, this ongoing process of helping narrow down a route uh, so that, you know, you're avoiding the really important places, uh, you know, in an area, uh, you know, those, those special places that may be, you know, of historical significance or of some conservation significance. Um, and also just, you know, other criteria that you think are important, you know, just if, if you're really worried about, you know, uh, if it might be near an electric fence line or, uh, you know, if you have, you know, a, a large pond on a property, any, you know, anything that may be of concern that, you know, may be an important issue to you, it, it's something to really, uh, continually follow up on throughout these rounds. Just those, those little you know, are you checking on this? Are you making sure that you're avoiding this? Have you looked into this? Questions like that are just important to continue on throughout the process. Yeah, and it's also right. questions about the tax assessments or revenues generated. They should talk to their accounting supervisor and their accounting auditor. Great. Thanks, guys. We've, we've talked a lot about uh, the, trans- the transmission infrastructure and some of the renewal en- renewable energy options that are emerging in rural areas. Before we wrap up, we're running out of time, but before we wrap up, I just want to do something fun here. So, so Katie, you have a background in agricultural research, and you've done yep. some advocacy with the young, young farmers and STEM students. What is the Make It Work program? Oh, Make It Work was a program um, I was involved with um, during the Iowa caucuses in 2016, and we were advocating for working family issues. Uh, things like the minimum wage and paid family leave, paid sick days, um, equal pay, and affordable childcare. So that was that was fun. We kind of would go around and um, go to different events for our um, presidential candidates in Iowa, which you know we get to do every four years, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and tried to get answers from them on where they stand on those issues. Excellent. Another example of how in rural communities there's such a high level of involvement, especially at the grassroots level. Yep. So, Lou, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work as a local high school speech and debate team coach. Tell me a little bit about that. Where do, where do you do that? Oh, wow. So I, I used to help a lot more, and now I probably can't claim that title anymore. Um, <laughs> it, it was at my hometown in Norfolk, Nebraska, um, which some folks might recognize because it's the hometown of Johnny Carson, which is our claim to fame. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just a, it's, it, it's really nice because you really, you really build this uh, camaraderie in the program when you're in it. And uh, afterwards, you have this opportunity to go back and see students develop and, you know, really find their voice, find their, you know, their specific skills, find what they're good at. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of friends that were going to college to become teachers and I never really got it. And then uh, a couple of years ago, just kind of clicked. It's like, oh, that's why I enjoy going to help out with the speech and debate team, because you get to see students grow and develop. And then you get to go see what they, you know, what they do with their lives and, you know, what they choose to do. And you can help give them advice and, you know, guide them to, um, you know, what what they're going to do next in life after they graduate high school. And so. I, you know, I think it's a nice, rewarding way to, uh, you know, stay with uh, a program that was really important to me and, you know, even connect with people that I went to high school with or that, you know, I, I met through the program 
uh, who we only see each other on weekends when we go to tournaments now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still nice to see them when the season's going on. That's right. That's, it. That's exciting and interesting. Rural schools certainly are the center of community life in, in many places there. So we're going to wrap up this show, and I really appreciate our guests for joining us, uh, Kate Rock and, uh, and Lou Nelson from the Center for Rural Affairs. And I just want to thank you all for being a guest on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, John. And as we wrap up, I also want to, want to thank the people who produced this podcast, Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Sempelis. We couldn't do it without them. And thank you for listening. And tell your friends about the podcast on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. And send us your ideas at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com. Rate us on iTunes and we'll keep this conversation going. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time on the Rural Matters Podcast. Have a great day.